All throughout the universe, we see that space is not only full of stars, but galaxies far beyond our own Milky Way. And at the centers of almost all of these two trillion galaxies out there in the universe lies, we believe, a black hole. Almost every galaxy has a massive or supermassive black hole at its center, millions or even billions of times the mass of our sun. But some of these galaxies are active, are emitting intense amount of radiations and undergoing these burst-like events. Others are quiet. Others don't make a sound at all, pretty much. So why are these galaxies so different? What goes on to turn these black holes on or off? And what happens inside these galaxies to make them active or not? Find out on this edition of the Starts With a Bang podcast. to know how any astronomical phenomenon or object got to be the way it is today, you'll want to know what happened in the past to give it its current shape, its current properties, and its current whatever it is that it's doing. So part of understanding this is right at the connection of observations where we observe all these different galaxies and see what we're doing, and theory where we're trying to understand the physical mechanisms that drive these processes. And here to help us untangle these mysteries about AGNs and what's going on in the central cores of galaxies, I'm so pleased to the- welcome to the program Dr. Yashashri Jadhav. Yashashri comes to us from South Korea by way of India, and I'm so pleased to welcome her to the show. Thanks for being here. Thank you so much for having me here. I'm very excited for the show. Yeah. So, you know, when I think about all of what's going on in these galaxies, right? The Milky Way, we have a black hole. We have a massive black hole. It's about four million times the mass of the sun. We have other galaxies around us. Some of them have black holes around our size. We might even be on kind of the low end. Uh, But others have, you know, Andromeda has one that's maybe 80 million solar masses. M87, the big galaxy at the center of the Virgo cluster, has one that's maybe six and a half billion solar masses. And one of the closest active galaxies to us, Centaurus A, not only has about a billion solar mass black hole at its center, but it has these two enormous jets streaking out of it on either side, about as long as the entire galaxy itself. When we look at these galaxies, I'm struck by how all of them seem to have black holes at the center. So all of them seem to have this potential to create jets and outflows and these uh, chaotic energetic events, but not all of them do. When you look at these, what is it that tells us, or what is it that we learn when we see a galaxy and it's active versus a galaxy that's quiet? So when we look at these different galaxies and we see their particular black holes at their center, we can see and identify various different signatures that will allow us to know whether or not a galaxy or the supermassive black hole itself 
is active or not. So as you mentioned, some have jets that are coming out of it. So that is one big signature that we can identify. And um, others, we can also see X-ray emission. We can see radio emission. So looking at these black holes in several different wavelengths is what gives us an idea of what's actually happening in the centers of these galaxies. So if I if I didn't know anything about, you know, these other wavelengths of light beyond what we could see, I might just be naive enough to say, okay, what I want to do when I see a galaxy is I'm going to look at the stars and I'm going to look at the gas and I'm going to measure how, you know, if it's a spiral galaxy, how they rotate around the center. Or if it's an elliptical galaxy, how they sort of swarm and how the velocity gets dispersed around the center. Um... But if I do that, I'm going to be able to sort of detect the black hole if my telescope is good enough by saying, okay, look, as I'm coming in from the outside, I see like, basically I'm sensitive to all of the mass that's interior to me. So if I'm on the outskirts of a galaxy, I could draw a sphere around that galaxy out to where I am and say, everything inside of this affects me. And as I get closer and closer to the center, it's only that little bit inside that sphere around the center of the galaxy that's going to pull me in. So I can look at a galaxy regardless of whether it's active or not. And I can look at the stars and I could look at the gas and I can say either it's consistent with there not needing to be a black hole in there or... I need a black hole of a specific mass to explain how these things move around. Um, that, that seems great. And so in pretty much every galaxy we see where we can make these measurements, we have, yep, there's a black hole somewhere between a few million to a few billion or maybe even tens of billions of solar masses. But as soon as we start doing exactly what you said, looking in the infrared, looking in the x-ray, looking in the radio, all of a sudden, uh, some galaxies have a lot to say, and some of them have nothing to say at all, and some of them have nothing to say, and then briefly say something, and then don't say anything anymore. Um, why is this happening? Like, what do you see in the other wavelengths of light that is going to lead you to conclude this galaxy is active versus one of any other processes that could be going on. So to take a step back and think about what actually causes the activation of these galaxies. So what happens in the centers of these black holes is that a lot of the mass that is surrounding these black holes starts getting accreted onto the black hole. So it sort of goes around the black hole and then eventually falls into the black hole, which gives rise to the black hole increasing its mass. And that is what causes this active galactic nuclei, as we call it, or an AGN. And um, it emits radiation over the whole electromagnetic spectrum. And in some cases, it can even outshine the entire galaxy. So to just take a look at what the AGN looks like, it's usually comprised of four main components in addition to the actual supermassive black hole itself. So the, the main thing is the accretion disk, which is sort of you can imagine as like a dusty, cloudy area that is surrounding the disk. And you can see two different components in there when you take, say, a spectra of that region. So there is one which we call a broad line emission region and then another one which is a narrow line emission region. 
So you can identify those when you take a spectra of the galaxy, sort of to see the chemical composition of the supermassive black hole and um, the galaxy itself. And then the gas inflow to the black hole is what we call just the inflow, which actually forms the engine of the AGN. So that is what converts the gravitational potential energy of the infalling matter into radiation. And that radiation is then what we see. So the spectral signature of the accretion disk is another key feature of the AGN because it depends on the rate at which things are falling into the black hole. And that determines how bright this disk is. Uh, uh, no, I was just going to say, and then, of course, we have the jets that are coming out, out of the two ends. So the jets are now going to be perpendicular to the disk. And that is where we see the jet in X-ray or even in radio. All right. So let me see if I can if I can put this together. So if I think of something we have close to home in our own solar, solar system, like like Saturn, I think about Saturn's ring systems. And okay, what are those rings? Well, one of the leading theories is that that ring system, at one point, it was a moon. And that moon got smashed by something, something struck it, and it just scattered into all this little debris. Now, we know that for if you got too close to Saturn or Jupiter or any planet and you orbited around it, instead of having a moon, the forces, these tidal forces on the moon would make it get torn apart into like this ring of debris. When I think of a black hole, I think, okay, well, instead of like little moons going around a planet, you have stars and clouds of gas and planets and um, all of these different forms of matter that can be there. And once any of them get too close to the black hole, these same tidal forces are going to tear it apart. And because there's matter in this environment, it's going to collide, interact, heat up and accelerate. So, okay, give it a little bit of time, and what are we going to have? Well, if it gets hot enough, we're going to ionize that matter. So instead of having atoms, we're going to have ions and electrons. And when they go around, they're going to make electric and magnetic fields, and those are going to accelerate these charged particles. And what happens when you accelerate a charged particle? It emits radiation. So this seems to be a a sensible physical mechanism. But I would think if galaxies are always made out of this stuff, right? Galaxies are always made out of stars and gas and matter and all of this stuff. And if they all have black holes, at some level, shouldn't all of them be active? Or is that is that thinking all wrong? Is it wrong to think that there should be some level of activity in all galaxies, even the quiet ones? The, the way I think about it is that, as you mentioned, we have stars, we have matter in all galaxies, and we think that there is a supermassive black hole, either active or quiet, in all galaxies. So what is it that leads to some of them getting active? Um, the way I like to think about it is it's sort of um, a chain reaction, in a way. So if you have a lot of stars that are towards the center of the galaxy that start getting too close for comfort, so to say, and they get attracted by the supermassive black hole and that leads to them 
breaking up, getting um, accreted onto the supermassive black hole that starts the process. And then if you have many of them, it continues the process and that leads to the formation of this supermassive black hole. I think we're assuming that the supermassive black hole is always there. Um, so we're not worried about forming the supermassive black hole. I'm really worried about whether the supermassive black hole is going to actively emit radiation or not. Sorry, it's been a while since I've thought of this. So the only way a supermassive black hole would emit radiation if is if it is actively accreting mass. And that is determined by, as I mentioned, the number of um, stars, the matter that is surrounding the black hole. So when the distance between the black hole and the stars in the matter gets close by, that is when it gets caught in the gravitational potential of the black hole. And then that leads to the accretion, which is when you start getting radiation from the black hole. I see. So uh, in, in physics terms, we would say this is a stochastic process. And in, you know, more conventional terms, we would say, look, this is something that is at risk of happening all the time. But you have a finite number of stars, you have a finite amount of matter, and, you know, you can only eat as frequently as you get fed. So because galaxies are big and this number of stars are many, um, you know, you will. You will get stars that fall in. You will get globular clusters and other forms of matter and even things like galaxy mergers and infalling satellites of galaxies that do feed the black hole. But this doesn't happen all the time. And in particular, it doesn't happen all the time on scales that you could see it. That, you know, gravity is always at work, but it's sort of like, I don't know, is it wrong to think of a black hole at the center of a galaxy the same way you think of the Muppet, the Cookie Monster? Where the Cookie Monster, you know, if you've ever watched a Cookie Monster eat cookies, you see that, okay, it opens its mouth, it shoves the cookies in there, it goes nom 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 nom, and the cookie crumbs go flying everywhere. You know, there's not really a whole lot of cookie that actually goes down the mouth of Cookie Monster because it's, uh, you know, it's a Muppet. It doesn't have an opening like that. But in a black hole, um, they're messy eaters too, right? The process you described to me, if I think about a black hole as like a dartboard, falling into that black hole might be hitting that inner bullseye. It's getting like, okay, I got it right aligned and bam, it goes into the black hole, the black hole grows, that's great. Most of this matter is gonna be orbiting around the black hole in this accretion disk or uh, more generally in accretion flows. And it will get accelerated, it'll emit radiation, it'll emit some particles too. And that's when it really becomes active. So is it sort of like, okay, like if you give a black hole a cookie or a plate of cookies, um, you might get something that you're going to see for quite a while. But if you're like, okay, we're only going to toss, you know, a cookie per century into the black hole, it, it might appear quiet for most of the time. Right. Right. Yeah, that is actually a very good analogy. I might steal that in the future. Steal it. Steal it. That's what this is for. <laughs> With I mean, tea, of course. But yeah, I think that is a really good analogy because it totally depends on the number of objects that are surrounding, the number of cookies that you want to feed this black hole. As you said, if there are many, then sure, we will get lots of signatures. But 
if it's only one per century, then yeah, not not so much. Well, this this brings up an interesting point then. It sort of makes me think, look, we know that there are all sorts of ways that galaxies feed on one another. In fact, we have a whole field of research in astrophysics called galactic cannibalism, uh, where just a bigger galaxy eats a smaller galaxy. And we also have the science of galaxy mergers, and this is a big part of large-scale structure formation. If I have a galaxy that I see is merging with another galaxy or interacting with another galaxy. There are lots of signatures that that I'll see as evidence of this. One of them is I will see uh, a lot of ionized hydrogen because what we call H2 regions. Uh, And this is because when galaxies merge, uh, you get these collapse of gas clouds, which leads to new star formation. And that star formation includes stars with lots of ultraviolet radiation, and it ionizes the gas around them. I say that the ionized hydrogen is there because it's easy to see. We know exactly what is that narrow line signature of ionized hydrogen, and it's very easy to see. But we also can look at the stars and say, oh, look, there's a um, disproportionate number or percentage of hot, young, blue luminous stars in there. Those are the ones that only show up if you've just recently formed stars. If I went, you could also say, oh, let's look at the supernova rate, because the supernova rate gets enhanced in a galaxy that has recently formed new stars. So I might think, okay, if I have galaxies that show this sort of evidence for a recent major merger or a recent cannibalism event um, or a recent episode of bursting star formation in them, would those galaxies, because of this, for lack of a better word, violence that's going on in them, Would those galaxies be good candidates for also being active galaxies and having active black holes? Yes, absolutely. I think those are great candidates for having active galactic nuclei at their center. And uh, that's actually the basis of some of the research that I've done during my PhD is looking at post-merger galaxies and in particular at their active galactic nuclei and what happens when two galaxies merge. So the way we like to think about it is, as we've talked about earlier, galaxies usually have a supermassive black hole at their center. So when two different galaxies merge, first what happens with their supermassive black holes themselves is that they form a binary in the merged system. And this binary now starts undergoing several different interactions with other things in the galaxy. So once the galaxy is merged and once this binary has formed, there are several different processes that first occur. So it is first driven by gravitation, by dynamical friction. So that causes the binary to tighten and the binary separation between the two black holes also starts closing down. So this then starts having interactions. So um, if you've thought about slingshot effects that happens with stars. So imagine three different objects that are in a system, and then one of them gets slung far, far away. So it carry it carries out potential energy from this system of three objects. And then the two objects that are remaining now get closer to one another because of that. 
So this also happens with the binary supermassive black holes in the merged galaxy and the stars that are there surrounding this binary. So the stars get slung out and then the binary starts getting tightened. And this happens with a lot of different stars. And eventually, once the separation of the binary is small enough that gravitational wave emission now becomes significant, this binary collapses, coalesces, and becomes one large supermassive black hole. And this one, if I'm not mistaken, is a very good candidate for becoming an active galactic nucleus. I see. So what you're what you're telling me is there's actually a whole set of processes that need to happen really before a galaxy is ready to be active. Um, because what you're saying is, okay, look, galaxies merge, and if each one has a supermassive black hole, then what's going to happen is when they start to merge, it's very unlikely that these two black holes are just going to go right on a collision course, make a beeline for each other and be like, aha, now we're super black hole. We got together and this is awesome. Uh, what's probably going to happen is they're going to be separated by some initially substantial distance. And that could be hundreds or thousands or tens of thousands of light years. It could be, it could be quite substantial, but you brought up this issue that I've I, I've thought about a lot, including back with my own research, which we won't talk about how long ago that was now. But we have a couple of black holes. These are large masses. These are the largest masses that you have in the galaxies. Um, and as they orbit each other, like you said, there are all sorts of other things around them. There are stars and gas and dust and all these other forms of matter. And when you have something like this, when you have large masses and small masses all together in a gravitational dance, uh, a process occurred that I learned as named violent relaxation, um, which says exactly what you said. Look, if you have three masses, what happens in general is because they interact chaotically with one another, one of these masses is going to get kicked out. But then, because you have to conserve energy and angular momentum, that means, oh, well, if you kick something out, then whatever's left has to become more tightly bound, so its orbit shrinks. Um, so the more stars you kick out, because you're going to kick out the low-mass stars, and the high-mass stuff is going to move together, um, we used to call this mass segregation, but we're trying to not use language like segregation anymore in the world. So uh, I don't think we have a good name for it, but the violent relaxation part we're still happy to use. And what happens is the black holes migrate in closer and closer together. Now, I understand on the theoretical side, there's actually kind of an argument over what happens with these black holes because like you said, oh, if you get them close enough now, then they're going to in-spiral and merge just like the black holes we saw from LIGO. But I've seen a lot of people arguing recently, and you might have a horse in this race, um, that there's actually a disconnect. That if you say, okay, first you migrate inward by kicking other matter out. And then, once you've kicked all the other matter out, now you gravitationally radiate stuff away and you come together to merge. Um, some people are saying, actually, 
if we do the simulations and we see, hmm, we get these black holes and they kick all the stuff out and they get close together, they don't get close enough for gravitational radiation to take over and get you the rest of the way there. Um, so I'm a little curious um, if you've looked at this issue at all and if you're like, well, look, they obviously get there even if they don't know how the gas works, so they probably got something wrong with the gas. Or if you're like, no, actually, this is a real problem, and we expect that there will be many binary black holes out there that just didn't have enough oomph to get all the way together. Yeah, that is a very interesting question and a debate that I have heard at basically all the conferences that I have been to because <laughs> I am on one side of this issue. <laughs> Well, well, tell us your position. What side are you on? So I am actually on the side that the coalescence does occur. So this problem is often referred to as the final parsec problem, which sounds a lot more romantic than it is, which is basically the binary supermassive black hole potentially coming to a standstill at a separation of about a parsec, which is about like three-ish um, light years. And what we argue, or what the papers that I base my argument on argue, is that even at the separation in merged galaxies, we will have gas, we will have stars, which will cause interactions with the binary supermassive black hole, and then causing this black hole to further tighten, and then eventually letting gravitational wave emission take over. And um, as you might have seen from the many different gravitational wave talks and other outreach and information that we've had over the past what uh i think i think the first gravitational wave was discovered in 2015 and they announced it in 2016 so yeah it's been it's been a little over five about five and a half years since the world found out that gravitational waves exist right and uh, it's been a very exciting discovery and actually some of it was done at my phd institution the rochester institute of technology so i was kind of there to see their first discoveries and hear all about it from the horse's mouth so to say and uh, many of them put forth several different simulations which take these kind of two supermassive black holes and then see what happens to the gravitational wave emission that goes on during this kind of a coalescence so when we see this kind of a binary starting to come close to each other, the gravitational wave emission, which depends on a variety of different parameters, including the orientation of the black holes, the spin orientation, which way it goes, um, the different masses of the two black holes, and that determines what kind of emission we see. And usually it is anisotropic, which means that it is uneven in direction. And that causes a very interesting effect. So because this emission is not isotropic, we get a recoil velocity to the merged supermassive black hole. And this merged black hole, because it's gotten this velocity, now starts oscillating in the merged galaxy for almost a billion years by the time it comes down to Brownian motion. So what we expect to see is this merged black hole now starts oscillating in the galaxy at distances of even hundreds of parsecs to sometimes even more in the very initial stages of the, uh, of the oscillations. Um, and we should see these in galaxies everywhere because 
we know that galaxies merge everywhere, which means that black holes should also merge everywhere. And that was actually the basis of uh, my PhD dissertation is trying to find these recoiling black holes to be a signature of both gravitational recoil as well as signatures of binary supermassive black hole mergers. Now that that's pretty interesting because it seems like you can make a direct prediction from that, right? Because if you're saying, okay, look, we know how massive these black holes are, and when they inspiral and merge, um, dependent on, you know, look, we can say it'll have a distribution of spins and spin orientations and masses and mass ratios. Um, so you you put in a distribution, you make simulations. This is this is one of the great joys of being able to write simulations. Is you say, look, we only have one universe, but I can simulate as many merging galaxies as I want. Even if there were only a handful in the universe, I could just simulate billions or trillions of them and say, well, what are they going to look like? So then I can go out and look for one or a few or many and say, okay, but you're painting this general picture that they're going to inspiral, they're going to merge, and when they do, um, they're going to get this velocity kick to them. They're going to get this velocity imparted to them, which means that if they were in the dead center of the galaxy, if they were in that like inner bullseye of the galaxy, well, if you give something a gravitational kick in a random direction, it's all of a sudden going to get displaced from the core of the galaxy. It'll get displaced from the center. And when you say hundreds of parsecs, I translate that and I hear, oh, she's talking many hundreds, maybe even a thousand or two thousand light years. So this seems like the sort of thing that if you're like, hey, we're going to look for these galaxies that have a supermassive black hole that's offset from the center of mass or the visual center of the galaxy um is that is that something we can find and characterize and say hey look there is evidence that within the last billion years or so there was a merger in these galaxies and also is there a connection between these displaced cores and active galaxies and that last one i'll tell you i'm not sure i know the answer to because i can imagine it going both ways i can imagine oh yeah the merger makes the galaxy active and as long as that black hole is is displaced from the center it's plowing through that material and it, the material's chaotic anyway so yeah it's absolutely getting fed all the time and it's just full of cookies and very happy or i can imagine it saying you know sure it does it gets displaced from the center but a few hundred or thousand light years is pretty small on the time scale of a billion years and most of that matter gets eaten up or taken out pretty quickly and by the time we see these galaxies it's gone quiet again it's not active anymore so i don't know what's happening there do, does anyone do you <laughs> that's Actually, a very good point and a question that I believe one of my company members asked me what happens. So um, <laughs> what he said is exactly right. So we have two different scenarios that would happen. And uh, so the, the first that we call is Bondi accretion, which is basically accretion onto a compact object as it moves through the interstellar medium. So that is one of the potential fueling mechanisms for an active galactic nucleus. 
And if we have this kind of an active galactic nucleus that is going through the galaxy, it all depends on how many or how much gas, how much um, we have that is surrounding this black hole and how fast it is going to be eaten before we're actually able to observe this. So this gives us a timeline of when up to when can we see this accreting process happen. And um, that sometimes can be more or less than the time that it takes to settle down into the center of the galaxy itself. And it all depends on how much is surrounding the supermassive black hole. So that is always a question. That is a question that I keep asking is what parameters go into us actually being able to see this kind of a displacement? And the good thing is that we have several different features that we can look for for these kind of displacements. So we can see both optical features. So you can see them through, say, the Hubble Space Telescope. Or you can also go and see spectroscopic features. So um, as I mentioned earlier, there are several different components to a supermassive active supermassive black hole. So when a supermassive black hole gets a kick velocity, part of the black hole remains behind because it's only the most tightly bound or what we call the innermost regions that stay, the accretion disk that stays with the black hole. And that is what we can observe. And if we can find out that there is a offset between say the narrow line and the broad line region, then that is another way to identify that this black hole is on the move. Interesting. So you you talked about this from the observational perspective. I want to try and bring it back to uh, something that that maybe more people will be a little familiar with, where you say like, okay, like let's imagine something like this happened in our solar system, right? If we had another large mass come close to the solar system, you can imagine, oh no, it's going to disrupt things. Um, and you can imagine like, okay, well, it's going to come from the outside in, so maybe it'll disrupt the Oort cloud and the outer planets, but maybe it'll leave the inner ones alone. Maybe the inner ones are bound to the sun too strongly to be disrupted by that large mass coming through. And similarly, if Earth got kicked out along with this, um, you can imagine, oh, well, maybe Maybe the moon stays with the Earth, because even though the Earth gets kicked out, it's the whole Earth-Moon system that gets kicked out. That's kind of what you're sort of describing here with the black hole, right? The black hole's going to get a kick, but everything that's close enough to it, stuff that's already in its accretion disk, or stuff that's very tightly bound to it already, when the black hole gets kicked, it's going to drag that stuff along with it. But the stuff that's farther away, the stuff that's barely bound to it, you know, I feel like you could poke Neptune with a pillow and it would fall out of the solar system. And that that's, that's not quite right. It's not quite that weakly bound. But it's much easier to get Neptune out of the solar system than it is to get something like, you know, if you had the same mass planet uh, at the distance of Earth or Venus out of the solar system, you you it's going to take a lot more energy because we're so much deeper in the sun's gravitational well. It kind of works the same for black holes, doesn't it? That, you know, okay, the black hole forms, it, like it grows, it merges, and it gets this kick, but all the stuff that's real close to it, it's going to drag with it. So you would expect, as long as it's got that, you know, those cookies to eat, it's going to remain active 
while it has that stuff traveling with it. Um, and I should ask if I have that right. And if I do, um, it, is that what you saw? Uh, could you repeat the question? Like, saw so, Oh, yeah. It, so is, is that an accurate picture where you're saying, okay, we see black holes with displaced cores in galaxies where they're displaced from the core, and we see this black hole is active, like it's feeding on its own accretion disk. Yes, absolutely. So there have been studies that have been done in the past which look at these different components of black holes. And there are several that have actually found displacements between these separate components, which suggests that, yes, this is a black hole that has one undergone a merger with another black hole after a major galactic merger. So that is definitely a signature that people are on the lookout for. Now, you mentioned uh, the difference. You mentioned that you have both broad line regions and narrow line regions. Um, is it fair to say that this is basically looking at the stuff that's really tightly bound to the black hole is going to be the narrow line region um, because all that stuff in there is uh, very tightly bound? Or do I have it backwards that it's the stuff very close to the black hole that's actually going to be a broad line region because it's moving around much more quickly because just like Mercury moves more quickly than the other planets. So which region is going to be the broad line region? Is it the accretion or is it the stuff farther out? And which one's going to be the narrow line region? So it's actually the second one. So the broadline region, the broadline region cloud is going to be surrounding the accretion disk, so tightly bound with the black hole. Whereas the narrow line region is going to be away, it's going to be um, out by the torus, by near the jets. So that's going to be the one that's loosely bound to the black hole. So when the black hole gets a kick velocity, it's usually the accretion disk and the broadline region that stays with the black hole. That's interesting. So that that sort of tells me is it, it makes me want to ask, does that mean you can look at the ratio of broadline to narrow line emission and you might actually find, you know what, it doesn't have sort of a universal ratio. You actually are going to get varieties in what that ratio is dependent on how active your galaxy is and what stage of evolution it's in based on its activity. Like, will you actually see galaxies with a similar strength narrow line region, but with big differences between them in the broadline emission or vice versa? I have to honestly say I have not thought about that. So you're actually so you're actually thinking about the properties of the broad line and the narrow line region itself and how that affects the supermassive black hole. Is that correct? Yeah, yeah, that or rather how the supermassive black hole um, you know, affects the emissions that you'll see, both narrow line and broad line, uh, as a function of evolution, because 
you know, I'm sort of thinking like, oh, well, you know, immediately after the merger, you're going to have one set of conditions, but those conditions are going to change over time. Uh, and they may change differently for the narrow line region versus the broad line region, because although they're both affected by the black hole, I would imagine they'd get affected on different time scales, or they'd be affected unevenly on the same time scale. Yeah, that, that is very interesting to think about because when you think about the radiation that is coming out of the black hole, then of course it is first going to go to the broad line region and then it goes to the narrow line region. And there is another separate section, so to say, of um, observations or even theoretical models that people study for these kind of supermassive black holes called reverberation mapping in which they're actually mapping the entire region that is surrounding the black hole and seeing how that um, changes with the evolution of the black hole. So yeah, when you're seeing um, the luminosity of these different emission lines, so we are seeing like the hydrogen lines, we're seeing the magnesium lines, we, we are seeing sort of the different um, reactions as we call the H alpha, H beta lines, the oxygen lines, and what we are looking for is whether there is a lag between the light curve signature. Say the H alpha line was right at a level five on day one, but another line was that bright on day three. So there is like a three day lag between these two lines. So that tells us more about what's happening in the center of the black hole and the area that's surrounding it. And that also gives us sort of a picture of how the radiation is, so to say, moving through the different regions of the black hole. Interesting. So is it fair to say that that when you see these variations in in brightness over time or in what elements show up over time or in uh, like luminosity from the in the different wavelengths over time, it's almost like if I if I build this picture in my head of okay, you know what? Uh, every time the black hole eats a cookie, it injects some energy, and that injected energy is first off, it's going to propagate outward and heat up the various molecules and atoms and ions in there. But it's also going to only do things once a critical threshold is reached. For example, I might say, oh, once I get to I don't know. 3,000 Kelvin or 10,000 Kelvin, uh, I've ionized a bunch of hydrogen. So now I'll see my hydrogen emission lines. But then when it gets up to 50,000 degrees, now I start seeing doubly ionized oxygen lines. And when I get to a certain energy, I get magnesium lines. So can I think of this as okay, well, I fed it a cookie and it's got energy to put back into the region surrounding it. And Basically, the energy has to, it takes time for it to propagate out, and also it takes time for things to heat up to a certain temperature. So I'm really watching, like, I'll probably incorrectly call it gas and plasma dynamics and heating occurring, um, but, but that that is what's driving some of these uh, differential changes in the elemental signatures you get. Yeah, that is um, a good way of putting it because it's it's all interconnected. So it all depends on what goes in, what comes out, and how it sort of moves through 
the entire black hole. And yeah, eventually this also allows us to sort of map what happens in an active galactic nuclei. And that is still very much um, a hot subject because not a lot of black holes have been accurately mapped and we are still trying to do more. No, and you've you've highlighted uh, that I think is very important that these active black holes do uh, change over time. Like when you're monitoring one, it's not like, oh, it's active and it just sits there at this constant activity level for as long as we look at it. Um, it's probably going to continue to stay active because I... If I understand correctly, it takes much, much longer than a human timescale for an active black hole to turn off or for an inactive black hole to turn on. We we have small black holes like we call them microquasars uh, in our own galaxy that we can see, okay, it flares and it goes quiet and it gets loud and it gets quiet. But that's not the same as a giant behemoth at the center of a galaxy. You, you have a galactic merger. That's something that takes hundreds of millions or even billions of years to complete. You could have a galaxy remain active for... I think the typical time scale I've heard, and you can correct me if I botch this, is tens of millions of years for a typical active galaxy, but some of them could possibly stay active for hundreds of millions or even a billion years or more. Is that feasible? That is feasible, yeah. yeah. It all depends on the galaxy, it all depends on the mass, it all depends on the mass that is near the black hole and the interactions that it goes through. So. Every galaxy is different. Every galaxy will be on a different time scale, but that is about correct. So between millions to a billion years. Yep. Okay, nice, nice broad range. I'll take it. Um, so when we when we then look at these, you know, I'd sort of be curious: is there a way that you can look at an active galaxy, and? You know, you have all of this information. You have the broad line emission. You have the narrow line emissions. You have uh, small changes in the luminosity of various elements. And as you alluded to earlier, you also have multi-wavelength data. You have X-ray data. You have infrared data. You have uh, radio data. Can you look at an active galaxy and extract information about maybe what stage of where it is in the lifetime of an active galaxy from when it turns on to when it turns off? Or is that something, well, we can really look at it and we can say it's on now and that's it. So I think that is a very difficult thing to judge by looking at just the active galactic nuclei itself. What we could say is what's going on with the rest of the galaxy because there is something as we call galaxy coevolution with the supermassive black hole itself. So if we see that there is this active galactic nuclei in a galaxy that has just undergone a very, very recent merger somewhere in the last, I don't know, 100 million years or so. Yeah, that is that is recent in astronomical times. Yeah, I think anything that's less than 1% the age of the universe, we can say, yeah, you're you're short on astronomical timescales. The same way if you took less than a year in a human lifetime, you know, by by time you're by time you're an adult, you're like, that's pretty short. Yeah, exactly. 
So if you're looking at an active galactic nuclei in a recent merger, then we can safely say that, okay, this is potentially going to be going on for several hundreds of millions of years more. But if you're looking at an active galactic nucleus in, say, what we call an elliptical galaxy that has undergone merger in the past, um, we also like to call these red and dead galaxies. And the reason why we call them that is there isn't a lot of active star formation that's going on in these galaxies. And that leads to the question, how many more interactions can the black hole undergo with stuff that is surrounding the black hole? And does this give it sort of a limit of radiation that can be created with these interactions? How much mass can it accrete more? So that can give us an idea of, okay, maybe it's in a later stage of its activity and it may not last as long as an active galactic nuclei in say something that has just undergone a merger that has a lot of gas, a lot of stars, a lot of clusters that are actively near the black hole that can now be used as fuel for the black hole. So lots of cookies in there, but if there are less cookies near the black hole, then we can say, okay, maybe not as long for this one, but if there are too many cookies near this black hole, then okay, that could go on for a much longer time. And that's interesting, too, that you can also look, you know, you talked about the black hole galaxy connection here, that you can also look at the color of the galaxy, because like you said, elliptical galaxies, um, they tend to be dominated by redder colored stars. And that's because, look, in an elliptical galaxy, you tend to, this tends to be like, okay, when you have enough major mergers that happen, uh, you kind of wind up with an elliptical galaxy. It's it's pretty unlikely that when the Milky Way and Andromeda merge, for example, it will be an elliptical in the end. Um, but if you took like the center of a galaxy cluster where mergers probably happened a lot throughout the past, um, you might get like a lot of elliptical galaxies in there. If you look at the core of the Virgo cluster, for example, you'll see like, oh, like maybe more than half the galaxies in the very center are ellipticals. And they're red because when you form stars, you form them in a big burst of all different sizes and colors. And the hottest, most massive ones are the bluest ones, but also the shortest lived. So you let a little bit of time pass, the blue ones die, the red ones remain, and that's why these galaxies are red. And they're dead because they have no gas. So if you see a galaxy dominated by red stars with no gas in there and it's active, you can say, well, look, like you might be active right now, but I see your plate is empty and you have no cookies left, so you are not going to be active for all that much longer. Whereas if I look at this other galaxy where the merger is still ongoing and there are all these blue stars in there and I see it's gas rich, uh, then that tells me, oh, like you come back after humans are extinct and the next whatever it is is dominating the Earth, you know, probably some sort of uh, giant chicken, I imagine. Um, is and that's that's going to be you know that's going to be fine you know that'll just be like okay like well the giant chicken people that come after us they're going to be seeing you know what that galaxy is active too but those red and dead ones mm -mm, they went away they went away yeah. don't quote me on the chicken people <laughs> oh could also be a giant pterodactyl well those were kind of chickens anyway yeah <laughs> um so um so 
this is where we are right now. Like we we have this set of knowledge of like, okay, we have this picture of how the galaxies turn on and what drives them to turn on. Have there been observations that have surprised you where you've looked at a galaxy and you've said like, okay, this galaxy is active and it does not make any sense for this galaxy to be active or where you've seen like, hey, this galaxy is full of gas and it has a recent merger and it even has a displaced core and for some reason it is not active because uh, I've discovered for me anyway um, when you sort of link a phenomena up it tends to happen on average the way we expect it but then there are always outliers and I'm curious if you've come across any interesting outliers where you're like okay, yeah, this object is something that uh, we really just don't know what's going on with it. Or, you know, this kind of object ought to be out there, uh, but we don't see any of it. So I haven't come across non-active supermassive black holes yet much because I, I study the active ones, so I chase those. Um, but what has been interesting is, as I mentioned, I am looking at recoiling supermassive black holes. So these are the ones that get a kick after a galactic merger and after the two black holes merge. What's interesting is the number of them that I have seen so far and the number that we should be seeing. And there is a disparity between the two. And that is one of the big questions that I want to try to answer is, why is there that big of a difference? So I looked at about a hundred of them and found good candidates in only about 10 to 20 of those, which is a lot less than what we should be seeing considering the number of galaxy mergers that happen in say the last billion years or so, which should all lead to these kind of recoiling supermassive black holes. So What's going on in all of these other galaxies? Is there something that we're not seeing? Is the recoil not happening? Is the merger not happening? Which is the question that uh, we touched upon a little while ago, the final parsec problem. Is that is what happening? Um, is it just getting stuck or is it just the signatures that we're not seeing? So that is definitely an interesting question that I have seen so far and would like to see answered. Um, it also could be that we're just looking at them on their off days, or we're looking at them at the wrong stage of their recoil. So as I mentioned, the black hole, it recoils in the galaxy. So if you think of um, a pendulum, which is sort of going up and down to the other side and back, there is some time that the pendulum also spins at the very center. So we might be looking at some of these, which are happen to be at the centers of their galaxies, but they actually do have a recoil velocity. And this is where observing in multi-wavelengths, so looking at both the optical signatures as well as spectral signatures would also help because if in the optical signatures, we see that it's in the center, but it does have a velocity when we look at its spectra, then that will tell us something more about these galaxies. But that does remain a question that has to be answered. So you want to look not only at you want to look not only at position, but you want to look at the velocity of the black holes. Um, is it also? I would imagine, but I could be wrong. But I would imagine that 
we don't yet have the capability of discerning between a single central black hole that's merged and a pair of binary black holes that might be, you know, 10 light years or less apart. Is that is that something we can measure or can't measure just yet in these AGNs or in these GNs? <laughs> <laughs> right. Um, so that is something that we can potentially measure. So we the main problem that comes in looking at these kind of binary supermassive black holes is the distance between them and the resolution that we have with our best telescopes. So the distances that we want to see these on, or, or even in the final parsec problem, so that is the scale of, say, 10 light years or so, which is very, 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 very small, thinking of astronomical terms, that is minuscule. So to put it in terms where we can think of is, imagine a football field, and our black hole is the tip of one football in the center of the field. The other black hole will be the other tip of the football. So the difference, the distance between those two is the size of a football in the center of a football field. Now put that football field light years away, and now we need to see that. So, so this is not easy, but we have at least in recent years in the radio um, been able to take extremely high resolution uh, pictures of, I'll say, extremely radio luminous objects. Um, the way the way I like to think about that, and I'm talking about, of course, uh, ALMA and uh, the Atacama Large Millimeter Submillimeter Array Telescope, the array of 66 of them, and also the Event Horizon Telescope, which includes ALMA, but also incorporates about seven or eight other uh, radio dishes or arrays of dishes into a global array. And so with that, you know, when we look at something on the sky, we typically think of it in degrees. Like if you hold your hand out at arm's length and you hold your pinky out, your last finger, the width of your pinky nail is about one degree. Um, so if you say, okay, there are 360 degrees in a circle, that's a degree. If I break that up into 60 chunks, that's an arc minute. One arc minute is about the limit of human vision on the sky. Um, you can break those up into arc seconds, and there's 60 of those. When we use something like the Event Horizon Telescope, we can get down to tens of micro arc seconds in terms of resolution, uh, which is enough to resolve the black hole at the center of the Milky Way and the black hole of a few other galaxies within a few, I'll say a few tens of millions of light years. Um, but that might be, if I could think of any technology we actually have today, that might be the one piece of technology that is actually capable, again, if these black holes are radio loud enough, to actually tell us, okay, is this a singlet? Is this a binary? Um, and is there a narrow separation distance where both of them can be resolved? Right. Yes. Have have there been efforts made to observe with this and try and find these? Yes, yes. There have definitely been efforts observing um, binary supermassive black holes with radio. 
cannot remember the paper off the top of my head, but I am pretty sure I came across several when I was doing literature research for my work. And there were studies done in radio to try to identify these because you can separate those in radio as you can, as you said, up to about micro arc second, even milli arc second um, scales. And there's also the counterpart spatial offsets in optical. So the Hubble Space Telescope, um, the resolution for the Hubble Space Telescope is actually pretty good. It's about 0.1 arc second per pixel. So not quite milli arc second scale, um, but we can use these to find out separations of say on the order of 10 parsecs in relatively nearby galaxies. So that is the resolution that we have so far for optical images. So, so you could easily see, you know, if you have a nearby galaxy, like if you went and took a look at, I don't know, Centaurus A, a nice active nearby galaxy. Um, if you went and took a look at that, you'd be able to see, okay, is the black hole powering this activity? Is it located at the galactic center or is it offset from the galactic center by 10 parsecs or more, you know, in, in either of the transverse directions? Right. And uh, you, you wouldn't be able to see in line of sight, right? No, no, not a line of sight. Uh, but yeah, if it's in a transverse direction, then you would be able to see. And one famous example is actually M87, one of the galaxies that you'd mentioned earlier. So in that one, we do see a spatial offset. And that one is actually a very interesting spatial offset for another reason. The offset that we see is in the direction of the jet. Wait, I thought... I thought it was a bi-directional jet. I thought that there were two jets and we just saw the one jet that was coming towards us because the other one's behind the galaxy, so we see less of it. Oh, but you mean it's it's in that same dimension. Like if you were to draw that line of like, oh, the jet comes out both sides, um, the black hole is actually along that line. It's displaced from the center of the galaxy along that line. Well... That's also interesting because M87 is pretty red and pretty dead and also pretty active. If I remember, the jet you're talking about is something like 5,000 light years long um, and you can see it in optical images. Yeah, this makes for a very interesting um, case because this leads to thinking, okay, what is exactly causing this displacement? Is it the recoil velocity that we'd mentioned earlier or... Uh, there is another school of thought which says that it could actually be the jet itself that is giving the black hole a little bit of push because, because as uh, you just mentioned, it is a bidirectional jet, but one direction is stronger than the other. And that could lead to sort of an asymmetry in the amount of radiation, which could give the supermassive black hole a little bit of a push, which over several, several hundreds of millions of years, could lead to a spatial offset. Oh, geez. So you're basically thinking, you mentioned a pendulum earlier. This is basically treating a black hole as like a child on a swing set. And you have, uh, you know, two twins, uh, Arnold Schwarzenegger and Danny DeVito, pushing the twin on both sides. And one of them is pushing the twin a little bit. One of them is pushing the child a little bit harder. Uh, so over time, the child winds up swinging more preferentially in one direction than the other. Um, 
is that sort of the picture you have that like actually it's getting a a larger kick when it goes one way and then a smaller kick back the other way and then a larger kick back the other way and over time this adds up and actually can lead to I want to say it's probably the wrong word, but some sort of resonant phenomenon where over time it builds up and now it actually has this large uh, oscillatory motion to it. Actually, in this case, if we are thinking it is just due to the jets, then it could be more thought of as a tug of war between, who did you say, Arnold Schwarzenegger and Danny DeVito? Oh, there was this movie called Twins, where Arnold Schwarzenegger and Danny DeVito played twins to one another, uh, and only their mother could tell them apart. Like, everyone else thought that they were identical twins, but but their mother could tell them apart. And so uh, that was that was the premise of the movie. Uh, now you don't have to watch it. <laughs> <laughs> but, but Danny DeVito, if you're not familiar, yeah. is uh, much shorter mm-hmm. and weaker than Arnold mm-hmm. Schwarzenegger is. Right. So you can imagine both of them are pulling on this supermassive black hole and then it gets preferentially over time very slowly pulled towards one direction. Interesting. Interesting. So it sounds like um there's like we we've I've thought about AGNs before. I think we even had a podcast on AGNs uh a while ago, maybe last year. Um but there are so many different aspects of them. Uh, that I think it's it's often worth revisiting because there's so much uh, we don't yet understand about them. We don't understand, you know, for example, like how this energy gets transferred from the black hole to the particles to the surrounding medium around them. We can't look at an AGN and say, okay, here's how I predict it's going to change over the next century or millennia. We, we can't do that yet. Um, you can really only say like, okay, well, we observe it and we can classify it into this set of properties. Um, but like you said, look, you went and you looked for these galaxies that should be active and should have these displaced cores and should have like this whole set of phenomena to them and you were like these are the best ones to look at and out of a hundred of them only 10 to 20 of them you said only about you know 10 to 20 percent of them are showing the effects that you thought would be there which is curious because it tells you you've got something right because the effect exists and it is there and it's not just like it's there once it's there a bunch of times but also there are a bunch of cases where you might expect the effect to be and it's not happening um is that something i i mean clearly that's something we don't yet fully understand is that something that Uh, Other than, okay, well, maybe sometimes they do merge and sometimes they don't. And, you know, some 10 to 20 percent of the time, you know, what did you call yourself? Camp two is correct. And the other times camp one is correct. Um, I don't think we know enough to put an answer on that yet, do we? Yeah, uh, it's it's a question of questions in a way, because it's like, okay, which question are we trying to answer here? Which question is this the answer to? Is this uh, happening due to the final parsec problem? Or is it happening as so the question that we think that we need to answer from this 
is the rate at which galaxies actually even merge in the universe. So the reason why we think that there should be more is dependent on the number of galaxies that we expect to have merged in the last billion years or so. Now, if this rate is different than what we currently think it is, as is in the literature, then that could change things. Then that could mean that we do expect to see fewer and we saw fewer than we currently expect. And that means that we need to change our understanding of the rate at which galaxies merge. So this ties into an even bigger picture are the number of galaxies that we're looking at. So I actually look more at elliptical galaxies that have undergone recent mergers. Maybe the assumption that all of them underwent recent mergers was wrong and only maybe half of them merged in the last billion years or so, not the whole hundred. So that leads to another series of questions is, okay, um, is there something else that we need to be looking at while looking at the hierarchical structure of galaxy evolution? And I think that is very interesting too. You know, I'm just going to spitball something here, but something that I've always thought was curious about active elliptical galaxies is there are a lot of if you look at our Milky Way and you say, okay, like what is the Milky Way made out of? You'll say, okay, it's got stars and gas all throughout it. Um, and it has a halo of gas around it as well. And, you know, there's a bulge and a bar in the center and blah, 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 all these other features. But there are also these little balls of stars that exist all throughout the Milky Way's halo uh, called globular clusters. And typically they have around hundreds of thousands of stars, but some of the bigger ones might have like 10 million or so. And some of the smaller ones might only have tens of thousands. Um, but these are generally like there are about 150 of them in the Milky Way. Um, and they're, they're around. They're around pretty much every major galaxy we see. Now, in giant ellipticals, they are incredibly numerous. We're not talking about like, oh, there's 100 or 200. We're talking like, uh, there's like 5,000 giant globular clusters, like big ones around in here. And some of them might have like you know, 10 or 20,000. They, they, they have very large numbers of these globular clusters in them. I've always wondered, you know, with these globular clusters, um, they plunge through the galaxy, they get gravitationally disrupted. I like to think that eventually, particularly the ones that are clustered on tight orbits near the center of the galaxy, eventually, they're going to get sucked in to the central black hole. They themselves could contribute a pretty substantial amount of mass towards an accretion disk, towards something that would power an active galaxy. But it's also occurred to me like, boy, there's probably a lot of angular momentum there and it's a messy environment. And there might be a lot of reasons why that couldn't activate a galaxy. But you know, with large numbers of things making a lot of passes through the center of a galaxy, I wonder, you know, are mergers even the only major way to do it? Or could something like, ah, globular cluster came in and here we go. And oh, guess what? There was some interstellar gas and I ran into it and I ate it. And now there's cookies on my plate in my black hole and I'm active again. Could, could there be, um, you know, 
something much more mundane than a major merger that suddenly triggers activity in a galaxy? Or, or is that not realistic because it wouldn't last long enough? I am not 100% sure about this, but that is a very interesting school of thought because globular clusters do affect, as you said, the centers of galaxies. And that is actually one of our probable mechanisms for observing these kind of displacements is if there are enough number of interactions with stars and globular clusters, then that could also displace these black holes a little bit. Now, that could also, again, I, I'm also spitballing here, that could be the start of the chain reaction that eventually leads to the activation of a black hole. That is possible, of course. I would have to actually look into the physics of it. But from a broad picture perspective, it's not entirely impossible. Well, that's, you know, that's... If I were doing research, maybe we would maybe we would have something to talk about there. Because uh, that's, that's an interesting question, right? There are... One of the things I've always liked about uh, astrophysics in general is to say, okay, we're going to see phenomena that we look at that and we go, huh, I didn't expect that to happen. I wonder why that's happening. Or we look at phenomena and say, oh, uh, that's interesting that I would expect that based on this thing, I would see this signature, but I don't see that signature. I wonder why. Um, and I think part of the reason I love theory so much is because it gives us the freedom to sort of say, okay, well, let's think of all the things that are out there. Let's think of all the things that are at play in this system. And what are some things that we haven't looked at yet? If I looked at this thing, could that perhaps be responsible for? Okay, no, not that one. So we'll rule that one out. But what about this other? Oh, that's not, uh, that's not impossible. Maybe that's worth exploring. And, um, you know, it's sort of like you're free to explore whatever wild idea you want, but then you have to confront it with the laws of physics and reality and the observations we already have and say, okay, well, um, what do we learn when we bring all of that together? And the answer is usually a lot. Either we'll learn like this scenario is viable, but there isn't evidence for it, or this scenario is you know, completely ruled out and we can show why and how. Right. And that is also science because we will know something more yeah. about why something cannot happen. Yeah. Yeah. So let's see. I want you to imagine, because we've, we've talked about a lot of different topics about the centers of galaxies. We've talked about a lot of different topics about active galaxies, what turns them on, what turns them off cookie monster. Um, so I'd like to ask if you can imagine, okay, it's 10 years from now, it's 20 years from now, we've had lots of new observatories, we've taken lots of new measurements, we've discovered large suites of these quasars or of these active galaxies that they display a wide variety of properties. What are some big questions that we have right now 
that you anticipate 10, 20 years from now, we're going to come back and actually know the answer to. Like when you look at where this field is headed, what are some big questions that you're actually looking at? You know, I think with the upcoming data we're anticipating, um, we should be able to actually know the answers to these big questions. So that's actually a very good timeline that you've given. So 10 to 20 years. So as you mentioned, in 10 to 20 years, we will have a variety of different new telescopes. So we will have several different optical infrared telescopes that are going up. And we will also have the next range of gravitational wave emission identifying telescopes going up. So that includes LISA, which is a space antenna. So that is the laser interferometer space antenna which will be able to observe gravitation wave signatures from supermassive black hole binary mergers. So I think once LISA is operational, we will get proof of these kind of supermassive black hole binary mergers as well. Right now, we have proof of more sunlight or the size of solar mass black hole mergers, but we don't have proof of the larger ones yet. So we will have definitive proof of that scale as well. We will also have telescopes which have a much better resolution, both optical, radio as well, which will tell us more about what's actually happening in the centers of these galaxies that we couldn't look at before. So right now we have a lot of different candidates which look kind of fuzzy, so to say, or elongated in the centers of these galaxies where we think that there might be a binary signature of supermassive black hole binary over there. But we don't have definitive proof because we cannot resolve the two. But once we have telescopes that have that resolution capabilities, we will be able to identify binaries in galaxies far, far away as well. And once we have all of these information, I think one of the biggest big picture questions is, do we have an even more accurate galaxy merger rate? And that is important because that determines the future, so to say, of the universe is completely dependent on the rate at which galaxies merge. And that will let us have even better simulations, better theoretical models that could predict where the universe is going. So I think in about 20 years, with a much better galaxy merger rate, we will have a much better understanding of what might be happening to the universe next. That's really interesting. So you're telling me, okay, yeah, we're going to get direct gravitational wave observations of supermassive black hole mergers. So if they occur, Lisa will uncover them and then we'll know for sure, okay, well, the final parsec problem isn't universally a blocker for these black holes merging because look, we see them merging. Um, and also we'll be able to look in the centers of many of these galaxies and say, is there one black hole there? Is there two? Is it offset from the center? Actually, we'll be able to make a distribution of how are these black holes offset from the center and how many of them are binaries. And we'll be able to use that data to infer the past merger history of galaxies in our universe in a completely independent way from how we've done it so far. So it seems like not only is this field going to advance, but its advances will help inform related fields in astronomy and astrophysics. 
Right. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, this is this has been a really fascinating discussion, Yashashri. I know that um, there's a whole lot that's uh, gone not the way any of us expected over the last uh, well since 2020 or so uh, in the world, and um, I can only imagine what kind of challenges you've been facing because you're originally from India and you went and got your PhD at RIT in the United States and now you're a postdoc in South Korea and um, you know this is I always like to highlight what an international endeavor science is that really doesn't know any national borders. Um, but I can only imagine that, you know, as much as we like to talk about this ideal of a world without borders, I am sure that over the last year and a half or so, you've really seen how, uh, how borders can be barriers in a lot of ways as well. And I was curious if you'd uh, maybe like to share anything about that with, with our listeners. Sure. Um, I always like to call myself an international scientist because I hail from India. I was in the United States for over nine years. So I did actually both my undergraduate studies and my PhD studies in the U.S. And then I got this opportunity to come to South Korea for my postdoc. So I've spent about two years over here. And I used to be the idealist thinking that, you know what, science is the one field which doesn't require um, a passport, so to say, I mean, obviously you do require a passport, but it is the one field which is universal. Everyone is here only for the science and borders won't really affect me that much, right? Well, no, it does. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, um, the struggles of an international scientist start when you're in undergrad as well, because I discovered really quickly that I couldn't apply for a lot of the different internship programs because I was not a citizen. And that led me to search for the particular ones. So I'm really thankful for the ones that did accept me and that do have international programs. So that was the Space Telescope internship program. And then I did an internship at MPI in Germany. So I've actually lived in four countries so far. That's fun. Um, but the it's problem comes. Yeah, it, it was amazing. It's been it's given me such a good worldview. It's expanded my horizons. Uh, it's helped me look at different cultures, accept different cultures, accept people from everywhere. And it's it's also led me to adapt to different situations really well. But the um, reality of the situation is that due to this pandemic, it's been really difficult for people to even hire people from different countries because of restrictions in travel, restrictions in um, visa granting, so a lot of the places that I would absolutely love to work to, I can't because I am not either a citizen of that country or I don't already have work authorization in those countries. And that has definitely become a barrier for me because, well, my current postdoc is ending next week and I don't have a place to go. So I'm completely on the job market. If any one of you would like to hire an astrophysicist, a data scientist who somehow also has a bachelor's degree in political science, which is story for another day, 
um, let me know. But yeah, I have been applying to a lot of different places, both in academia and beyond. And the work authorization has definitely been my biggest hurdle because I could be eligible for a number of these positions, but some of them require security clearance, which I literally cannot get. And yeah, even there were some positions that I saw where I could, I love to work in science communication, in outreach, but again, some European places, for instance, they can only hire people from those countries, from other European countries, which I do not belong to. So yeah, that is the biggest struggle of an international scientist is until you actually put down roots somewhere, you're kind of a nomad and you have to go from place to place relying on the visa that you have, which if it is related to your studies or if it is related to your work, you usually cannot stay in that country for much longer after you finish that work because your visa is directly tied to the work. Sorry if I'm like rambling at this point. No, I think I think this is very important. You know, I think a lot of people um, want to believe that science is always just this meritocracy, right? They always want to believe that, you know what, if you are doing really good work, if you are competent and skilled and you are doing really high quality research, then doors will appear and open for you. And not only, um, you know, I think is that not always the case, we'll just put it mildly and say it's not always the case. I think that a lot of times people aren't really aware that these barriers even exist because it doesn't affect them personally. And I think that, you know, just as we are outraged when we learned that um, someone is denied opportunity because of their gender or race or sexual orientation, uh, that we really should be just as outraged when someone is denied, you know, the ability to follow and pursue their dreams because of their country of origin. You know, we are all people on this world and in our field, we're all people in this world trying to figure out the mysteries of the universe. We all have to work together to do it, um, but it takes all of us. And if we aren't giving capable, competent people the opportunity because of, you know, some political idea of protectionism or xenophobia or whatever it is, I think, you know, not only obviously will someone like you lose out on having the opportunity to actually continue to follow your dreams, but also I think all of the scientific enterprise loses out. You know, I think I think there are a lot of, you know, early career scientists who don't wind up having careers in the field for reasons that, you know, really no one in the field supports. No one in the field supports that opportunities will be taken away from someone simply because they didn't have the fortune to be born in the country that has the employment opportunities or that opens the door to employment opportunities that they're seeking. So so thank you for for being willing to discuss that. I think this kind of openness helps everybody. Definitely. And with the number of people that we have everywhere around the world who want to be interested 
in academia who want to be interested in STEM, but then are unfortunately unable to do so because the places that would love to take them can't because of all of these different hurdles that they have to go through. And then sometimes, I mean, of course, this is not for every um, place of work. This is not for every opportunity. But sometimes we are left to wonder, okay, if they have two exactly same candidates, one who is a local and one who is international, are they going to be choosing the local one because it is easier to hire the one who is already there in the country versus the one who is international? And they would have to jump through a lot of hoops to get that other person in there. Um, it's just things that we wonder about. I mean, of course, as I said, this is completely theoretical, hypothetical, hopefully isn't true for a lot of the cases, but we just left to wonder. Um, I, I've been on a few of those hiring committees, um, and I will tell you that um, you are correct to wonder about that. You, you are correct. You should not stop wondering about that. Um, those are those are parts of the conversation, at least behind closed doors, that do still happen. Um, so, um, on a more positive note, though, um, I would like to say that uh, it has been wonderful to have you on and to not only learn so much about galaxies, what happens at their cores, what we are going to learn over the coming decades about black holes and active galaxies and link to galaxy evolution, but also um, for you to share sort of your perspective on many of the unsettled issues of the day. There's, there's a lot to still look forward to, but there's also a lot to appreciate about how far we've come in recent years. Uh, and Yashashri, I want to ask you before we, before we go, are there any final messages that you'd like to leave our listeners with? Oh, I will start with the one sentence that um, we all really like to say in astronomy is that black holes don't suck, they accrete mass. <laughs> <laughs> black holes are absolutely fascinating monsters that we have a lot to learn from. They affect so many things about the universe, about the galaxy, the galaxy that we live in, what's going to happen to our galaxy in the future and a lot of different evolutionary factors about the universe. And I hope people would be more interested in black holes and not being scared about black holes, which is what sometimes I see in media is black holes being perpetuated as these monsters were out to eat civilizations. But no, they're, they're mostly harmless as long as they're far away. Just, you know, don't go trying to go into one. So yeah, so this is a message to all of the international students out there. When you're interested in astronomy, you're interested in black holes or any other parts of astronomy, definitely keep cultivating your interest. And I will always say that networking is absolutely important, which is actually how I met you here at AAS, what, about six, seven months ago? It was. It was back at the uh, January AAS meeting. We met at a networking session. Yes. So every time I go to a conference, I always encourage all of the other students who were with me to go and talk to as many people as possible because at the end of the day, astronomy, even though it is a small field, networking is absolutely crucial, especially if you're an international student or a scientist, but for everyone, because that is how you will get to know other people. That is how you will share knowledge. That is how 
you will create connections that will last you a millennia or more, you know, as long as the black hole doesn't run out. Well, assuming that the universe doesn't come and eat us and all the media fear-mongering about black holes is actually wrong and not right, uh, we'll be around for a long time to come. So thank you, Yasha Shri, and thanks to all of you for tuning in. The Starts With a Bang podcast is only made possible through the generous donations of our Patreon supporters. And to say thank you, I'd like to shout out everyone who donates to us at the $5 a month level and above. Thanks go to... Chad Marler, Jeffrey David Maricini, Rob Hansen, Samir Kumar, Tim Graham, Aaron Weiss, Charles Buchanan, Chris Jakudas, Dominic Turpin, John Methot, John Van Balaguyan, Matt Conroe, Pete Smoyer, Pierre Franson, Punitive Expedition, Stefan Bernegger, Brian Terry, Danny, David Charney, Denier, Flo, Frank, George Church, Jens Kroger, Jerry Wilterding, John Kozura, Jose Enrique, Juan Jose Gomez Garcia, Judith Delmar, Mark Armstrong, Patrick Dennis, Pedro Texera, Rafael Wojcik, Randall Slimak, Sean Foley, Vlad Pashkovsky, Adam Robinson, Adrian Griffiths, Alan Parikh, Andre Chovanek, Andrew Jason, Arnulfo Zepeda, Ben Head, Bob Unger, Brainwise, Carl Iddings, Chris Hilly, Christoph Hip, Dan Steelen, Dana Bridges, Darren Redfern, David Hibbets, David Taschioni, David Wolf, Dick Pills, Dwayne Williams, Fraser Kane, Gabrielle Nader, Glenn McDavid, Hellbender, Hannah Khan, James Bryson Hyatt, James Nance, Jason Luttrell, Jason McCampbell, Jeff Renike, Kelly Kudrick, Lockwood Carlson, Mark Bloor, Mark Langston, Mike, Naked Bunny with a Whip, Nathan Hanna, Neil Flood, Paul Lester, Paulina Barron, Philip Francis, Francis, Radek Nesbida, Rich Weigel, Richard Schwartz, Rushin Shaw, Sam Serzakian, Steve Schaber, Tina Tallon, Tom Van Scotter, Tomas All, Tomas Walgren, and Weller Tractor Salvage, William Blair, and William Van Den Heuvel, and Youngko S. Thanks everyone for tuning in, and we'll see you back here next time for more Starts With a Bang. Starts With a Bang.